Okay, we are in Sefer Doniel, <coughs> Perik Ches, Posuk Aleph, Bishnas, Sholos, Lamalchus, Dalshetzal. So the first thing we're going to know is that we go back to Lachon HaKodesh Hebrew. We noted that in Perik Bays, we suddenly go into Lachon uh, Ashur, uh, the Assyrian Lashon, or Lashon Arami, but better yet. And we did it consonant when Daniel is dialoguing with the Buchadnezah. When there's a direct quote, that's when we started to go into Lashon Aramis. And the Nebuos themselves, verbatim, were <clears throat> in Aramis. Now, Al-Shetzar, as we're going to see, this is the third year. The regime is about to end suddenly. And so the Babylonian era is over. We return to Lashon Ivrit, or Lashon HaKodesh. So now we begin, Pasuk Allah. Bishnas Sholos Lamalchus Valshetzar, in the third year, and that is Valshetzar's last year of his reign. As we've said, the Babylonian Empire departs without a whimper. HaMelech Chazon Nire Eli, Balshetzar HaMelech, Chazon Nire Eli, a vision was shown to me, Ani Daniel, I Daniel, Acharei HaNira Eli Betchila, after the one I was shown first. He is referring, Daniel, to the parish Zion, which was given in the first year of Balshetzar. And it's very interesting now they're doing a follow-up. And the Malvin points out beautifully that this follow-up is very necessary because Daniel himself is still confused. You've had those four exiles metaphorized by animals. And yet, he lives in Bavel, so he certainly knows the Babylonian era more than lives. He is the second in command. He knows, of course, through the chazon, the very detailed chazon, the fourth one, Rome. The second just passed through in that first vision. In other words, the second one was a bear, which we described as the very voracious, ravenous, corpulent Persian Empire, and a nomer, a leopard, which we described as Alexander, and then later Greece, with Antiochus, the Greek Empire. Sorry, the question. Why isn't Daniel considered a Navi? That is an excellent question. That is an excellent, excellent question. He really is a Navi for all intents and purposes, but he is not, the period of Nabua has officially ended. He is more or less visions. He relates his visions. He's also a political figure. But yes, you... It should fit the job description of a Navi, but he is not. Um, why he is not, I think, requires a little more research on my part. So put that down as homework, but it's an excellent question. I ask myself that as I go through this. It's very much a Nabua. In any case, he is confused with the second, the bear of Persia, and the third, the Namer, which is Greek. So they're showing to him they're going to expand on it with very interesting variations. Pasuk Beis, 
and I see in a vision, I see myself in this vision in Shushan Habira. What are we talking about? First of all, Shushan Habira was the later capital of Persia, as we know from Megillas Esther. Why would he be there? And he describes it, it's Asher, but the province of Elim, which it was. I am on the river Ulai. Some say, yes, this is literal. He is in Shushan, years ahead of its being a world capital. Two, some say no, it's figurative. It's as if he was in Shushan, the Chazon transports him to Shushan, but he's not. There's a very interesting parish of the Vilna Gaon, where the Gross has in a medrash that when Ahasuerus was assuming the kingdom, he wanted a throne exactly like King Shlomo had with the ornamentation, the gold, the jewels, and the only where, he, only place he could get it constructed, the artisanship existed, was in Shushan. He was, his capital wasn't in Shushan. So he had it made in Shushan, and then after, it couldn't be transported. It just was so immense, it could not be transported, and so he said, Ahasuerus, very well, I will move my capital to Shushan. And so, by strange fortune, he transports the capital to Shushan Habira, and who is located there? Mordechai, Esther, um, and Haman. <coughs> so that it's like very serendipitous that they all come to that one place at that same time. So, whether he's at Shushan or not, we have to accept the fact it could be figurative, it could be literal. Pasuk Gimel. The Esa'enai, I lift my eyes, the Erev Hine Ayel Echad Omeid Lifnei Ha'uvo. There is a ram standing before the river, the low Karnayim, he has horns, the Karnayim Gavoim, they are tall horns. Got three horns, this ram. Visualize that the smallest one's in front, the larger is in the middle, and the largest is at the rear. And this, say the Mephoshim, is paras. And we say, well, wait a minute. We were shown paras representational by a bear a very corpulent bear. Where does this ram come in? And the Mephorshim say that that first representation is for international consumption, as it were. Their effect on the world seen as a world empire. Now we are discussing the more narrow issue of how are these empires towards the Jewish population. And as we know, Persia would be considered with the exception of Ahasuerus, a more benevolent form of empire to the Jews. And so it is now a ram, a domesticated animal, a ram with a horn, each one bigger than the next, which includes or is meant to represent <clears throat> the partnership with Madai and its other allies. That Persia is not alone. Remember, Madai ruled first, Dalyavesh, and then 
Persia gets on center stage. In any case, Raisi es ha'ayl minagech yomov etzafono v'negba. And I saw as this ayl, this ram, which is Persian Empire, minagach, gore, east, north, south, Nothing stands in its way. It becomes a very powerful empire. Remember, Ahasuerus uh, has 127 provinces in his empire. It extends south, as we said, Egypt, west, Asia Minor, east and north, over the Dardanelles to the very edge of India. Uh, the Mephorshim tells us. It becomes a giant empire. Lo yamdu lefanov, ve'en matzil miyotav, and anyone who attacks, uh, it attacks, cannot be saved. It is lost. Ve'osar kirtsono ve'higdil. And it does exactly what it wishes and becomes great and mighty. V'aniyo yisi mevin, I was trying to contemplate it and understand, and now a he goat comes. Minamarav from the west, it's not even touching the ground. It is like floating above the ground. And it has one horn in between its eyes. So this is. Greek, more specifically, it's Alexander. Again, the metaphorical representation of an animal changes. It's not a leopard anymore. It is a he-goat. Again, because Alexander and the most part the Greek Empire, with the exception, as we'll see, of Antiochus, was benevolent to the Jewish community. So it's scaled down, as far as we Jews are concerned, to a domesticated animal. But it like floats on air. And what we're referring to is Alexander's miraculous, uh, incredibly fast conquest of really the known world. Alexander starts at age 20. He dies at 32 under mysterious circumstances in that he was either poisoned by his generals or he contracts a very serious illness or um, infection, as it were. And he dies unconquered, never loses a battle, conquers the entire known world with just incredible deliberate speed. And that is what we are metaphorizing here. Um, and now he approaches the ram, ram being Persia, the very one I saw on the river Uval. Remember, he was speed. In fact, that's why we show the Karen is strength, but it has an eye on it. The Navi describes that is wisdom. Uh, Alexander was really about strategy. It was brilliant military strategy. So he combined both. So by love, he races towards this Persian ram, as it were, Bahamas Koho, with all his might. Historically, we know there are two great battles between Alexander and Darius of Persia. In the first, he surprises him and thoroughly beats him, beats him to the extent that Darius sues for peace 
offers him everything, treasure, money, empire, including uh, Darius's daughter as his wife. Alexander refuses and now takes him up in a final preemptive battle where he absolutely destroys the Persian Empire. Um, but Raisi, I see, Magia Eitzel Ha'ayl, he approaches the ram being Persia, Vayinismar Meri, completely eviscerates him. Vayaras Eitzel Ha'ayl, Vayishaber Eshtet Kronov, he breaks the two horns, the isle is helpless, the mighty Persian Empire succumbs just Totally, by Yashlichehu Arza, he flings him to the ground, as it were, by Yomasehu, the Lohoyo Matsil Isle. He tramples him, and there is no one to save Isle Miyado. Persia goes down again without a whimper. Utsafira Izim Hidil Adma Ode, and this representational Higo grows mightily, until ultimately the horn is broken, the one big horn, and in its stead comes four horns who underneath it, who extend to the four corners of the earth. This is, of course, is when Alexander dies, his empire is divided into four Parts, his four generals, um, there's Seleucus, Potami, Vespasian, and his brother Philip of Macedonia. And let us just keep in mind Seleucus is the most youngest of them all, the smaller of them, and from Seleucus will come Antiochus in a minute. So, so now there are four broken up of Alexander's empire. Umin Achasmehem, and from one of them, and we are talking about Seleucus or Seleucid, that would be in English. Umin Achasmehem, Yotzar Karen Achas, one of them, Mitzi Reha, from the youngest one, which is Seleucus. Vatigda Yeser El Hanegev, El Hamizroch, El Hatzvi. And now he moves Seleucus to the Negev southward, to the Mizrach east. El Hatsvi. El Hatsvi is Eretz Yisrael. He is moving inexorably Antiochus to Israel, as we will see. And he becomes so great, we're talking about Antiochus, becomes so mighty that he takes on the the heavenly host. Antiochus virtually challenges the Kaddish Baruch Hu. He's totally disrespectful, disregarding. He seeks to supplant it with another religion. He seeks to impose his religion on the base Hamikdash. And from this, from his total Hellenization, from the sky falls stars, Tzadikim, who fall under his sway. Um, Hellenization was a very powerful movement among the Jews, and fall to the ground. The Adsar Atzavah Hidil, Umimenu Huram Hachamid Behushlach Machon Mikadashav. And the Sar the heavenly host, he has the effrontery to take on, 
And for a while, apparently it looks like he is winning. And what he does is the unthinkable act of suspending the Karban Tamid and desecrating, we know they desecrated the temple Machon Mekudshav, so that what he does is completely interfere in the temple process without destroying it. And yet, Josephus, the historian, says when the Hasmoneans entered the temple, it was awesome, the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar, the desecration, the setting up of his own idols, the setting up of his own altars that he did, so that it appears momentarily that he has triumphed over the Kaddish Baruch Hu. V'tzvah, very interesting, Yudbeis, V'tzvah tinasein al-hatamid b'fasha, and a set time will be allowed for the suspension and the discontinuation of the of the Tamid, which came about from Pesha, from your sin, the sins of B'nai Yisrael. But what is this temporary suspension of the Tamid? It is, as we know, from 165 to 162 BC, where um, at the end, the Hashmonaim under Matzisyahu rebel against Antiochus, retake the temple, restore the, um, the, both the altar and both the Tumid. It is a temporary suspension by Tishlach MSR. So, but in the interim, these Greeks under Antiochus have thrown MS to the ground, the Ossesah, the Hatzlichaha. And they triumph. There's no question that in their brief reign, they were triumphant in what they tried to do. Interestingly, one of the measures says that one of the greatest threats ever of all the threats that the Jews faced was Hellenization. Because what they did at the beginning was very clever. Hellenization glorified the body, nature, art, science, philosophy, aesthetics. It was very attractive to the young. There were no gods. There were no responsibilities. And so the young took to it. And they were very clever, the Greeks, in that at first they didn't interfere with the elders. They let them do what they want. But the young people could have this religion, and it was a great attraction to the extent, unfortunately, say it almost ended the Jewish society because it was so attractive. But then God made the miracle of Antiochus. That's why they call him Antiochus Epimanus, the madman. It wasn't good enough for him, the pace it was going. No, he had to install an idol make them eat pig in front of the idol as it bowed, they bowed down to it, and that galvanized the Maccabees. And so miraculously, you reverted one of the most effective um, devices of, uh, of assimilation ever devised, being Hellenization. So that brings us to the point that Antiochus seems ultimately triumphant. The Tumid is suspended. The idols are replacing in a total desecration of the Mikdash. He has the effrontery to challenge the Kaddish Baruch Hu himself. And at a certain point, it looks like he is triumphant. How will this be diverted? How will Daniel get 
further influence and guidance will be the topic in Mirza Hashem tomorrow, 8.45 a.m. Be there. You will not want to miss it.